Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a form of But that Why hookup was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Happy Tuesday, you guys, and welcome back to the Every Girl Podcast. I am your co host and the wellness editor of the Every Girl, Josie Santi, and we are diving into a really fascinating topic today with one of my favorite wellness experts I have ever interviewed. Dr. Adrian Udeem is a board certified internist who specializes in medical weight loss and nutrition. She served as the medical director at the Center for Weight Loss at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles for nearly a decade before opening her own private practice in Beverly Hills. She has her own podcast called Health Bite, you should definitely check out, and is author of the book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. Besides her many accolades and accomplishments, I love that Dr. Udeem emphasizes how much emotions and stress affect weight. Okay, let's real talk for a sec. There's a lot of people out there talking about weight loss in a very damaging way that's adding to toxic diet culture and results in body shaming and even disordered eating. For a long time on The Every Girl, we avoided talking about weight loss altogether and instead chose to cover body positivity and self-acceptance. But I also knew that weight is an undeniable factor of health. A lot of women want to lose weight in a healthy way because weight loss might help them feel and be healthier. Also, body positivity and weight loss do not have to be opposites, as Dr. Udeem explains in this episode. So we started covering weight loss on The Every Girl because I did not want to shame women over any health goals they had, whether they had to do with weight or not. But in covering weight, one of the few experts I go to is Dr. Udeem because she approaches weight in a compassionate and body positive way that I actually find really helpful instead of stressful or damaging like other weight loss advice out there. In this episode, she also shares key advice for reaching a healthy weight that you probably have never heard before. I certainly didn't before talking to her. So if your health goals do have to do with weight, she's got you covered. I hope you enjoy this episode and it starts conversations that help you take ownership of your body. Welcome Dr. Adrian Udeem to the Evergirl Podcast. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. We're so, so excited to have you. Before we get into topics on weight, I want to know more about you and your history. I know you have such a fascinating childhood and and how you got to where you are. You're an amazingly successful doctor, obviously. What was your childhood like and what got you interested in weight loss? Thanks for having me. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here and so um, important to spread this message. So I really appreciate the platform. So let's see. Um, I guess I was one of those kids that always knew I wanted to be a physician. I think I have caretaking kind of ingrained in my DNA. I am the firstborn daughter to an immigrant family from a Middle Eastern culture in which family and caretaking and cooking is very much a part of our upbringing. And so it seemed natural, I think, to take that into my professional life. I also have a very strong love and passion for science and for knowledge. And my work is really a beautiful combination of the two. It's funny, I would say that my foyer into weight loss medicine is kind of interesting. I can't say that as a little child, I dreamed of like being an alternative to Jenny Craig. <laughs> that was what I thought <laughs> yeah. of. And there is a story of, you know, me having a 
really high aspirations for a fellowship. And I was supposed to go on this completely different path. And in medicine, there's something called gunning for those of us who are like super strivers. And in super gunner fashion, I thought, hmm, I'm just going to pop out my first child and then go on to do this other work. Of course, we don't just pop out children, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot more to it than that. Yeah. Right. So that child who I had as a resident, who's now going to college this coming fall, wow, kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And I stumbled upon uh, weight loss medicine because it felt like a really important way to practice prevention of all those kind of diseases that I was managing and treating as an internist. But it's even more than that. And I realized, as I share in my book, Hungry for More, that you know all of the experiences that I had, the hungers I had for perfectionism, for autonomy, for self-compassion, for meaning, really manifested in me doing this work. And why is that? Can you explain a little bit more about why did it feel like a meaningful, purposeful route for your your medical career? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, the first thing really that intrigued me was the science behind it, to be honest. And I think this is something that's not very well... Well, you know, back then when I was in medical school, it was not something we were talking about. It was not something we were learning in terms of what is the physiology that results in excess weight? I think still to this day, we really see it as this like um, cultural phenomena, character flaw. And if we really understood the physiology of why our bodies are prone to gaining weight and keeping it on once we gain weight, we would have more understanding for others and more compassion for ourselves. So I think that was the first area of interest. I think... After that, though, as I started talking to my patients who were coming in just for weight loss, just to lose 20 pounds, I realized that underlying this desire to lose weight was always an emotional hunger, was always a spiritual hunger, no matter who you are. And I practice in Beverly Hills, so my patients are movie stars, producers, executives, CEOs, you know, all of those glitzy types of people. And I want to say that whether you're a doctor, movie star, a CEO, it doesn't matter. Our hungers are universal. And that is the first step to self-compassion, right? In understanding the human condition and understanding that, that this is something that we all experience and unifies us. And if we can remember that, then we can start to have compassion for ourselves for our very normal imperfections. Or human. Totally. That's like exactly why I love you so much. I'm such a fan of yours and why we needed to have you on the podcast because you're really the only perspective I've ever heard on weight loss that, it, that it's like weight loss in itself is not the end goal. The end goal is to understand the emotional causes of what's kind of preventing us from being able to be our healthiest selves. And, and it's kind of like healing our bodies from the mind to the body and that weight loss is more or weight is more of a symptom than it is an end goal of it. So I, I love your perspective on this and I'm glad that you brought this up because what I really want to dive in with you, I have so much Adrian that I want to talk to you about, but first, before we get into like how to lose weight, what does that look like? I really want to talk about this idea that, that any topic of weight loss is toxic diet culture. You know, I think that for a long time, we've had this idea that weight loss is promoting unhealthy relationships with our bodies. And for a long time at the Evergirl, you know, we didn't cover weight loss because we felt so strongly in, in getting out of the idea that healthy means one weight and promoting self-acceptance instead. And, and then I, I kind of was also like, well, it's also okay. We shouldn't shame women for the health goals that they have. So maybe we should cover weight loss. So can you explain, because I know you, you talk about this so eloquently, what's the difference between a healthy goal of weight loss versus someone who wants to lose weight because they don't feel good enough as they are? You know, what's the balance between loving yourself and wanting a healthy body we feel good about? I am so glad you brought this topic up because it's something that I really have been reckoning with. I certainly understand the history and I wish it was historic. It's not all historical. That is the negative uh, bias, fat shaming, discrimination against excess weight, 
toxic messaging in our media. When I was younger, it used to be 17 Magazine that I would like swoon over. Now it's in this Instagram and TikTok, right? And this is real and it has real consequences. So the data shows that body image issues and body dissatisfaction is highly prevalent, not only among women, but also among men. And it begins as early as age six. Six. Oh my God, six. Think about, envision six-year-olds. It's a kindergarten class, right? Of girls and boys playing with dolls and little cars and coloring with Crayola. So this is, it really is toxic. But then that resulted in this counterculture, right? Of, yes, let's call out fat shaming where it is. I 100% agree with that. Let's focus on body positivity. Yes, I 100% agree with that. But body positivity is not incongruent with weight loss. Weight loss is not the toxic concept because guess what? The things that help us maintain a healthy body weight, the things that prevent us from gaining excess weight, which invariably 49% of the American population has suffered from over the pandemic, is not shunning weight loss. Those very same things that help our bodies are the very same things that promote emotional well-being, mental well-being. And let's not forget that when we do good things for our bodies, our bodies feel good, right? We need to redefine comfort food. Yes, comfort food in the moment helps you feel good, right? We get that dopamine hit from chocolate chip cookies, a glass of wine, a casserole. And I'm not vilifying any of that stuff. But when we do that over and over again, right, at the expense of our physical well-being, the truth is we don't feel good, right? Right. Drinking that glass of wine every single night, maybe two, maybe three, going into the pantry every night after dinner while you're binging on Netflix and finishing that bag of chips, it just doesn't feel good. But here's the thing. Instead of shaming ourselves for it, Instead of berating ourselves for it, can we have self-compassion? Can we meet ourselves where we're at in this moment, which is we are using food to soothe difficult emotions. Let's have compassion for that. Let's have self-acceptance for who we are in this moment, 20 pounds of excess weight or whatever it is, accept ourselves as we are and strive to do better for ourselves and our bodies. And that is such a better message, right? Than to tell people to feed them this lie, quite frankly, that you can be healthy at every size. Yes, you can be healthy at every size, but you can be a chronic smoker and not get lung cancer as well, right? The chances of getting lung cancer are going to be greater if you're a chronic smoker. Now, does that mean that I'm going to shame my smokers in my medical practice? No, I'm going to hold them with compassion. I understand the desire to soothe. And then I'm going to empower them to take the small steps to make small changes that ultimately are going to impact their weight, impact their health, and quite frankly, impact every single aspect of their lives because our relationship with food is a mirror to every aspect of our living, right? Yes, absolutely. That's really powerful. Even like obsession around food, like it is used to soothe. It is used to celebrate. It is used to come together with other people. Like there's, it's not just like we're going to eat to be healthy. Like that's not just what food is. There's so much more to it that's emotionally charged. So knowing how to have a healthy relationship where it can be emotionally charged in a positive way is I, I think what your message is, is it's not about judging ourselves for what our choices are, but instead just getting curious and making adjustments so that we can feel our healthiest. How do you know the difference between like a, a quote, healthy weight loss goal versus a weight loss goal that maybe not be healthy? It's really difficult sometimes, not so much to tease it out, but to help the patient meet themselves where they are. Oftentimes, even if they come to me 
and they're at an, uh, you know, quote, normal weight, whatever that means, right? Or don't need to lose weight. They still have this underlying hunger, right? And it's manifesting in a way that they're not treating themselves well. And so whether the person is overweight or not, or could stand to lose weight or not, I try and focus on the behaviors and on the feeling, right? So how are you feeling right now? What are you using to cope with those difficult emotions? And how can we change your lifestyle so that you feel well? So for example, maybe I'll have a patient who comes in who is overly restricting and then binging, and they may be underweight. But that doesn't mean that their relationship with food is right. So I'm not going to focus on the weight, but I am still going to focus on the principles, right? Like nourishing yourself, not in in terms of calories, but in terms of whole foods or nourishing foods that make your body function right. Nourishing yourself with movement and sleep. I like to broaden the definition of nutrition because nutrition is not just the food that we consume, but it's really all of our consumption, right? It's the social media that we consume, the news that we consume. It's the company that we keep around us. It's the words that we tell ourselves and that form of consumption. Nutrition can be brought in to include movement, to include sleep, all of the ways in which we wholeheartedly nourish ourselves. And that can happen or not happen independent of weight. But the beautiful thing is for the people who do come in having gained excess weight, particularly during this time, right, of the pandemic where it's been so ubiquitous, they find that by focusing on that, we can still have the goal of weight loss. It's kind of like the side effect that happens from that The side effect. I love that you call it a side effect instead of, again, like the number one focus, the number one end goal, that it's a side effect of being your healthiest self. And I also, that's so fascinating to hear nutrition is not just the foods on your plate, it's what you're consuming in every area of your life. Can you talk about how all of those things that you mentioned, your relationships, what you're you know, seeing on social media, the news you're taking in, like how all of those things are affecting your health and even your weight? Yeah. And, and there's some really interesting science here that I, I think is fascinating, which is that when we normally consume food, so normally speaking, our hunger, our physiologic hunger is regulated by hormones. So you eat a sandwich, that food travels down into your intestines and stomach. Your gut will respond by sending hormones to your brain that shut off that hunger valve, right? And that makes sense. You eat, hormones signal, no more hunger to your brain. The fascinating thing is that when we are under stress, when we are under duress and difficult emotions, our emotions literally hijack our hunger hormones. So they have done these studies. So it shows that stress, distress, literally is hijacking your hunger hormones, right? And so let's like just, let's just pause there for a moment. And again, have compassion for ourselves, for the fact that for the last two years, we have been met with so many difficult emotions, right? Angst, uncertainty, boredom, sadness, frustration, anxiety. Yeah. Worry, fear. Yeah. All the things. All of those things. And those things I am telling you physiologically are impacting our hunger. So it's not surprising that people have gained weight. This is not the image of like a sappy teenager who just broke up with her boyfriend eating ice cream in front of the TV. This is like real stuff that everyone is experiencing and it's mediated by our physiology, right? And so there's other ways, though, that we bring on that stress. And a great example is our phones. I mean, hell, I have mine right here in front of me. (laughs) Attached to your body, yeah. Attached to me. And the studies show that merely having your cell phone in your bedroom, okay, in your vicinity, heightens your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight nervous system. 
just having it in your bedroom, much less if now you are scrolling through social media or your newsfeed and actually reading content that is now additionally distressing or stressful, that is increasing your sympathetic drive. Well, when you have a heightened sympathetic drive and your heart rate goes up as a response, your blood pressure goes up as a response, your skin temperature goes up as a response, these are all you know, physiologic signs of stress, a stress response, what are you going to do? You're going to look to soothe, right? And I always tell my patients, like, you could soothe with alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, but if you're a goody two-shoes, like I am, you're going to soothe with a chocolate chip cookie. It's so true, right? It's so true. You're going to get yourself that pleasure and comfort where you allow yourself to have it. Right. And for most of us, that's food. Right. So that is an important way in which we need to identify our consumption, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we are trying to do the best for our bodies and yet our environment is such that it is promoting this stress response, then we're undermining us. Now, let's be real. None of us can function without a phone these days, or at least very few of us, right? But the good news is that, as I always say, we need not be perfect in order to be effective. Mm, so, that's good. That's a key one. Yeah. Right? That, that it's just effort. It's not about perfection. So meet yourself where you're at. Where are you right now? If you're 24-7 tied to this phone, then let's start creating some boundaries. Let's perhaps decide that we're going to charge our phone outside of the bedroom, which I recently started doing. Let's decide that we have screen-free hours of the day. Or if that feels like too much of a bite, minutes. Give yourself 30 minutes of screen-free breaks throughout the day. Meet yourself where you are at and try and suss out a plan that works for you. And then because this is important, because in order to have that self-efficacy, which means that feeling that we can actually deliver on our own goals, we need to create the environment for success. So when it comes to food, the phones, that means we need to put the phone outside of our bedroom. When it comes to food, that means clearing out the pantry of those triggers that we've gotten accustomed to over the last two years, right? Creating an environment for success So we set ourselves up for success and not for failure. Can you talk more about that self-efficacy? Such a hard word to say, but I I feel like that's not talked about enough. I think a lot of people talk about like willpower, which is another question I'm dying to ask you is like, it sounds like willpower is just kind of some jinx to make us distrust ourselves and feel shame and guilt instead of what it really is, which is a biological reason we want to eat more. But can you talk about what that self-efficacy is and why that's such an important factor for health? How do we get that? Absolutely. So um, there's all this data around, let's talk about New Year's resolutions, right? There's this number out there, right? Like only 8% or something of people who have New Year's resolutions actually keep them, right? And there's many reasons for that. But one of the big ones is that we tend to have these ginormous goals for ourselves, right? I am never, ever, ever going to touch another chocolate chip cookie again, or at least for the year 2022. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to run 30 minutes every single day, right? I mean, there's so many, so many things, big changes. And then usually we, there's not just one. I'm never going to eat a cookie in 2022 and I'm going to run every day and I'm going to meditate. I'm going to floss my teeth and maintain my skin regimen. Okay. All of which are fine. Right. But when we, when we create these big goals and we fail to break them up into small steps, invariably we fail. Whereas if we can take these big goals and break them down into small actionable steps. Small steps, when done consistently, when done cumulatively, result in really big impact, right? And I'll give you an example for weight loss. So um, I had a patient 
I mean, this could be any patient. It was more than one. And that persona was described in my book, Hungry for More, of a woman who came in and was losing two pounds every two weeks, a pound a week, right? And she was so irritated with herself and irritated with me, quite frankly. She kept telling me that she could have just followed a magazine diet and lost more than coming to see me. Noted, right? (laughs) Yeah, great. (laughs) But let's think about that, okay? Because while a pound per week or two pounds per week, which is like the healthy, you know, we talk about the healthy rate of weight loss, may seem like not a big deal. Two pounds per week equals eight pounds a month equals 24 pounds in three months, equals 50 pounds in six months. Really? Are you going to tell me that that is insignificant? Absolutely, it's significant. So that just goes to show you how small steps, when done consistently, accumulate into big change. Now, the secondary benefit of that is when you are um, successful in making these uh, hitting these smaller goals, that builds self-efficacy, which is the knowing that we can do hard things, right? Yes. It's like confidence, right? Yeah. Confidence in our, ourselves. Own, in our own ability. And, and efficacy in my mind is a little bit different than confidence because confidence kind of comes from external, you know, acknowledgement often, right? It's That's like, interesting. Oh, you look good in that red dress and like, whoo, I feel confident in that dress. But self-efficacy is is coming from yourself, right? From your own doing. And that takes me to another point, which is celebrate your wins, right? Which is don't dismiss the two pounds, but say, hell yes, (laughs) right? That's right. I did it this week. Yes. I, I think that that's such a huge tip for a lot of people because we get so focused on the next thing we have to do, what we haven't accomplished yet. And then it's also like we want the immediate gratification when in reality, any health goal really, or achieving any any healing with our body, any weight loss, whatever your health goal is, healing your gut. You know, there's a lot of health goals that it takes time and consistency in order to achieve them. But everybody's so focused on wanting that immediate reward of, it's been a week, I haven't lost more than one pound. And so I think what you're saying is so important of celebrating that one pound is not only just important, but is needed for you to achieve the 15 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, whatever it is. And I, so I think that, that that in itself is an amazing tip just to acknowledge what you have already accomplished because that is giving you the confidence in order to accomplish more. Absolutely. And I actually have a a writing practice that I recommend to my patients. So I'm a ginormous fan of journaling. Um, I have been journaling since I was six years old. It is a very healing and enlightening practice. So I recommend it to anyone and everyone. Just grab a, a beautiful little journal and your favorite pen. I personally tend to write in purple. I have multiple purple pens all over me and all around my desk. I love the purple. I want a purple pen. Love purple pens and just write. But here's a practice to get you started if that feels daunting. And it's, I call it the three things. And every morning or every night before you go to bed, I ask my patients to write three wins, three things that you can celebrate and they don't have to be big, you know? three things that you feel good about, write them down and celebrate them. The next is three forgives. We are by human nature, imperfect beings. Imperfection is built into the definition of being human. So write down the three things, write down your three imperfections, things that you wish had gone differently, things that you wish you had done differently. Write them down, forgive yourself, and let it go. And the next one is three commits, which is the beauty of this practice is that every day is a new day. Every day is an opportunity to start over. And so every day I ask people to write down their three commits, three things that they commit to that day. And again, remember that if you don't achieve them or accomplish them, they can go into your forgives (laughs) and then you can start a new 
right? You can start again the next day. Yeah. That is a really, really, really effective tool. And the fact that that's a tool for weight loss, like that it's it's crucial to accept, to recognize your wins, to let yourself, you know, be okay for your mistakes, for accept yourself for what it is. Um, so that's a really amazing tool. I know I'm going to re-listen to this back and take notes. So I remember how to do that. So I'm sure the audience is out with their pens and paper already taking the notes on it. So thank you so much for sharing that really tangible, effective practice. That's so, so amazing. Talking about like a little bit, talking about like the wins, celebrating the wins, um, this concept of, of body acceptance. I need for you to talk so much about this because I know I wrote an article all centered on your perspective on body acceptance, what that means, what that looks like, and uh, you know whether or not our goal for weight loss affects the way we accept our body. Can you talk about that a little bit? What does body acceptance mean? Does it mean you have to love every part of your body um, or your physical self as you are right now? You know, how do we achieve body acceptance? Yeah. And let me say that this is this is a challenge for everybody. Okay. It is a challenge for everyone. And it is something that is so ingrained in us culturally, emotionally, spiritually, even that it is a work in progress. I personally had an aha moment which was that um, I gave my book to a trainer. My husband and I boxed together one day a week. And our trainer is this young, athletic, former middleweight champion, super ripped, right? Like, you know, like he could be on the cover of a magazine. It's intimidating to work out next to that. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I'm in my 40s now, so I've been doing this work for a long time. But um, my point is that I gave him this book, which in my mind, you know, Hungry for More is really geared towards like a female demographic, even though I know better, you know, I see all types of people in my medical practice. But this person who is, you know, again, um, you know, camera ready for the front cover of Sports Illustrated or what have you, said that he related to every chapter in this book. And so, again, it speaks to the common humanity piece. The studies also show I shared with you the data of body dissatisfaction in the general population. What's interesting, Josie, is that it is not only amongst people who are overweight and obese, but even underweight individuals, right? Underweight individuals have a high prevalence of body dissatisfaction. So it's almost incongruent completely with the reality. That having been said, right, we can cultivate acceptance through a practice of awareness being aware of all the things that we say to ourselves. And it's said, again, I don't know how they do this, uh, figure out this data, but it is said that we have 60,000 thoughts per day and that 60 to 80% of them are negative thoughts, right? Wow, really? Right? So let's just think, let's just be aware. You wake up in the morning. What is the first thing you say to yourself? You're brushing your teeth. And looking in the mirror, you get out of your clothes to jump in the shower. You try and zip up your jeans and they're a little snug. What are you saying to yourself? Be aware, right? After awareness is to have self-compassion, right? To instead of saying to yourself, you know, doubling down on those negative thoughts and negative words to yourself is really trying to hold yourself with kindness, which is really hard to do. And so if you can't do it for yourself, pretend you're talking to your child or your best friend or to somebody else's child, right? Would you say those things that you say to yourself, to your child or to your best friend? And if not, then you damn well better not be saying it to yourself, right? And then the third step is to understand once again, the common humanity. Know that whether you are a teen, a doctor, a lawyer, Beyonce, a CEO, we are all bombarded by these constant thoughts, right? You're not alone in that, but you can work towards cultivating this self-compassion. Now, another side point to that is positive self-acceptance, which is accepting yourself for who you are, 
how you are in this moment. And again, this is not incongruent with having goals. I may have a goal to lose my COVID-10, but I can have that goal and still accept myself for where who I am, meet myself for where I'm at in this moment. We don't have to engage in our goals from a self-deprecating posture. And the cool thing is that not only is this the kind thing to do for ourselves, but it is actually the effective thing to do for ourselves because the studies show that those of us who are self-accepting, people who can accept themselves for who they are, are actually much more likely to engage in habit change and much more likely to reach and achieve their goals. Wow. I I think that's so interesting because as as a health coach, I hear a lot, you know, I will love myself when I lose 15 pounds. I'll feel confident when I lose. It's always like a conditional thing. So knowing that that body acceptance and self-compassion, self-love is actually not based on condition. It's about a practice, it sounds like, that that you do for yourself. It's the way you're rewiring the way you speak to yourself and the thoughts that you're kind of giving energy to, right? That that's where body acceptance comes from not from a condition, but from the practice that you do for yourself every single day. I think that's so effective. And I think that's really helpful in deciphering, you know, do I want to lose weight because I don't feel good enough as I am? Or do I want to lose weight because I will feel healthier and it will actually be good for my body? Like, I think that alone is actually a really helpful tip to kind of decipher, is weight loss a healthy goal for me or not? I know you mentioned your amazing book, Hungry for More. I read the entire thing and I loved it so much. Can you give some examples of different time types of hunger that you talk about and kind of what that means? Yes. Like we could talk for hours and hours, right? And before I get to that, I just want to piggyback on something that you said, which is a line that comes from my book in which I say that I was just as self-deprecating at size two that I was at size 10. And so this is certainly a personal anecdote to speak to that. And I also would love to share just a very common scenario that I'm positive your listeners can relate to because I hear this often um, in in the practice with my patients, which is to prove or to demonstrate how not being self-accepting actually undermines you in the way that the science shows. And so again, uh, imagine that you're now going back into the real world, right? And deciding that you want to lose that COVID-10. I bring up COVID-10 because that was the 10 pounds that I gained and lost over the pandemic. And you do all the things, right? You start meal prepping and you clear the house of all the junk and you start exercising. And then you hop on the scale thinking, surely I have lost at least five pounds in the last week or in the last two weeks, right? And then you hop on the scale and you're like, holy shit, I only lost 1.3 pounds. (laughs) Yeah. Like what the hell? Right? And so what do you do in that moment? If you can be self-accepting and have compassion for yourself and say, you know what? That does really suck. I worked really hard and I'm really disappointed, but that's okay. You are much more likely to stay in the game and continue to persevere as opposed to if you say to yourself, oh my God, look at me. I can't do this. This sucks. I'm never going to lose this weight. Yada, yada, yada. What do you think you're going to do? Give up. You're going to give up, right? And then right then, right when you're at the fork that you're about to see monumental change, you haven't given yourself, you have robbed yourself of that opportunity. So this is really a practical, practical example of how lack of self-acceptance will undermine us, will sabotage us. And I hope this example stays in your listener's mind, because I'm willing to bet that 99.9% of people out there who have started a goal to lose weight have experienced this very thing. Am I right? Oh my gosh, yes. And I know that so many women right now are like, hell yes, absolutely. That was me last week. Like there was, there was a lot of women feeling like I've tried, you know, every diet I work at regularly 
nothing's working, like they feel bad about themselves. So what what would you say to to people like that who maybe are not seeing success and they're like, what the hell? I've you know, tried everything. I've been so good, quote, good. Uh, you know, like, w- why is that happening? What does that look like? How do we still feel confident ourselves, accept where we are while still feeling like we're not achieving what we kind of set out to achieve? Right. And again, I am into compassionate yet actionable guidance. So I also don't want to tell people if they're not feeling like they're progressing despite you know, perseverance, despite being resilient, that, oh, it's okay, right? Like, don't worry about it. And so maybe it's going to require, you know, hooking up with someone who's knowledgeable, a health coach, a dietitian, a physician. Maybe if you've been struggling with excess weight all of your life, you need to find someone like me. And so this is not my way of sweeping the reality under the rug. We can be actionable and yet compassionate. And I would say that if people are really struggling, then perhaps, you know, gather your army, perhaps finding a person who can help hold you accountable, give you guidance, uh, do a review of what your current practices are and try and help you identify the ways in which you are maybe not you know, achieving your goals or could be achieving your goals. These are all valuable things. The book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out is broken up into about 40 hungers. And I have it here, but I'll, I'll share, you know, the table of contents is talking about hungry for perfection, for self-love, for soothing, abundance, nature, belonging, sleep, sovereignty, patience, connection. Suffice it to say that when we experience a desire to soothe, whether that's with food resulting in weight gain, or if that doesn't resonate with one of your listeners, we are all soothing somehow. Food, again, alcohol, smoking, maybe it's scrolling, maybe it's excessive shopping, maybe it's being on Amazon every day. All of these things give us a dopamine hit and they are a form of soothing that discomfort. In my work with patients over the last 15 to almost 20 years, I have found that underneath this kind of almost trivial thing of weight gain or hunger for food, there's really an underlying hunger. And it's an emotional hunger, a spiritual hunger. And oftentimes in just having the conversation or allowing the patient or client the opportunity to just kind of rant, speak, they themselves come upon this hunger, right? And I'll give you a really common one, if if you don't mind. Please. Oh my gosh, yes. Which is hunger for boundaries. Now, Oh, wow. Hunger for boundaries doesn't present as a client coming to the office and saying, hey, I have a hunger or a need for boundaries, right? What it usually presents as is, I really want to start exercising. I really want to eat well. I really want to sleep more and take care of myself, but I have no time. I have three kids or a husband or parents who are sick or a full-time job or uh, and, and I have all of those things, right? So I am speaking from personal experience. And all of those things are great and noble. And yes, we have to take care of our work and and not be irresponsible. And, you know, my children do have to be fed at the end of the day. I can't, you know, just just ditch that. But if your desire to do something for someone else, if your desire or if someone else's need always and consistently comes before your own, right? then we have to really look at what is truly going on there. And that is a lack of boundaries. It's a lack of value for ourselves, understanding that we are worthy of the necessary time it takes. Nobody said that it takes no time, right? For some reason, we know that relationships take time. We know that earning a degree takes time. We know that building a business or starting a podcast takes time, 
But for some reason, we think we should, our relationship with food doesn't take time. Of course it takes time. And when you know that you are worthy of that time, you will create the appropriate boundaries in order to take the time to do what's right for yourself. The boundary one is huge. I'm sure so many people can resonate with that. I know I certainly can about, it's not about just, I have no willpower. Like I'm not making time for myself. It's why, why do you not feel like you can set those boundaries and that feeling of hunger for those boundaries that are going to help you be healthy. So that's such a powerful example. What would you say to someone who's, uh, you know, like wondering, like, what am I hungry for? Like, what is the tangible takeaway to identify where that hunger is coming from? You know, we are, we are a society of strivers and doers. We're constantly doing. And that's great. I love that we can accomplish and achieve, right? But that should not come at the expense of rest, respite, and space, right? Slowing down enough to give yourself time to think and to introspect. And so what I recommend is a meditative practice. Not necessarily meditation because not everyone can wrap their brain around that, but some type of practice in which you slow the hell down and give yourself time, whether that's taking a walk outside, sitting under a tree or amongst nature. We're recording this podcast on Earth Day, and there's so much that being out in nature can do for us, whether that is meditating, a breathing practice. For me, it's writing. When I take the time to sit down with pen and paper and just let whatever is come, I find that things pop up that we are, were unbeknownst to me. Things present themselves. And because of that, and because of this very question that people have asked me, how do I find out my hunger? I actually created a 30-day journaling guide on my website to... That's amazing. Yes, to help with these poignant questions to really identify what you're hungry for. So if anyone's interested, you know, they can, you know, hop on and, and take a look at that journaling guide. But yeah, we will definitely link to that in show notes because I know a lot of people will want that. Amazing. So not only, um, it's not just writing, but whatever sounds good to you, some kind of introspective process that gives you the time and space to introspect and to see what comes. And the only other caveat I want to give to that is, please don't think this means that you're going to sit down for the first time with your journal and your purple pen, and you're going to be like, wow. <laughs> Alas, <laughs> yeah. right? I see it. The epiphany. Exactly. It takes time. And so if we can just, in our goal-striving persona, kind of dissociate from the end goal and just stay with the doing, you know, the introspecting and just have faith that it will present itself maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year. Mm -hmm. It will present itself if we give ourselves the space. And part of giving ourselves that space is really freeing ourselves from the expectation that it needs to present itself right away. That is such a powerful takeaway. That's really, really a, a helpful, tangible step. Thank you so much for sharing that. Adrian. I literally, I have so many more questions for you selfishly that I want to get to, but we got so many questions from our audience. Um, so I would love to ask you some of those commonly asked questions that people are obviously dying to know. First question is, what is a healthy weight? And I put air quotes on healthy weight. What does that even mean? How do you know if you're underweight or overweight? Yeah, I mean, there's this is um, a question with a lot of controversy because the current way that we measure excess weight is through a construct called BMI or body mass index. And it's a weight for height ratio and it is not dependent on sex or gender, body composition, ethnicity. And we know all of these things factor in, right? So for example, Asian Americans start to develop cardiometabolic disease or conditions of excess weight at a much lower body weight than Caucasian populations. So it is a grain of salt 
to say the BMI. That having been said, the BMI offers a range of weights for your height in which typically is related to a healthy weight. Usually a BMI of 18.5 to around 25 is considered normal and healthy. A BMI of over 30 is considered obesity. The reason being that when we take a population and look at them, in general, they start to develop cardiometabolic and other health-related conditions at a BMI of 30 or greater. Now, that is not an absolute. It is a range. If you are fit and you're weightlifting, Shaquille O'Neal had a BMI of greater than 30 and he was all muscle. So there is a caveat to that. But this is one of those places in which we need to be balanced and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. BMI is not perfect, but yet we don't need to vilify it because it is kind of a starting point. I will say this, whether you're five pounds overweight, 15 pounds overweight, 50 pounds overweight, the body is so forgiving and shows that 5% weight loss, okay? And so back in my past life, I was working with bariatric surgery candidates. Let's say they were 300 pounds, okay? If I got them to lose 10 to 15 pounds, their blood sugar would come down, their percent body fat would come down, the fat in their liver would come down and their liver would shrink. So they were better able to go on to have bariatric surgery. So were they at a normal BMI? No. But did that 10 to 15 pounds help resolve significant cardiometabolic abnormality? Yes. So hold the BMI with a grain of salt and know that even 5% of body weight is going to improve medical conditions if you're at that higher range. That's really helpful. That's really helpful to understand. I know there's so much confusion around BMI. So I think that's a really helpful way to look at it is it's a starting point. Maybe it's something to talk to your doctor about or to, you know, try to to look into more rather than holding it as, you know, the absolute truth and instead using it as a starting point to start understanding what's best for your body. So I think that's that's such helpful advice. We had a lot of questions about age and situational weight loss, like an ability to lose weight after age 30, postpartum, after menopause. Can you speak about why that is and what someone can do if they're dealing with weight shifts due to age or pregnancy? Yes. So, you know, I I would say the number one demographic in my practice right now are perimenopausal women. And, you know, we think menopause is like this old woman, but perimenopause begins as early as late 30s or, you know, early 40s, depending on the individual, but 10 years before menopause. And the, often I will hear the story of, I'm not doing anything different. And all of a sudden I'm gaining like every month I'm putting on weight. And the reason for that when it comes to menopause, and I'll just focus on this particular one for now, is that as we age, even in our 30s and 40s, we start to lose muscle mass. As we enter perimenopause and testosterone levels are relatively increased because of reduction in estrogen, which is one of the hormonal changes that occur during menopause, our body composition changes. Because of that, our metabolism changes. We're not burning the same amount of calories that we used to just by living. And so if we're eating and acting the same way we did when we were in our 20s and yet we're in our 40s, we will invariably gain weight because our bodies are not the same. Now, does that mean that our hormones will necessarily undermine us? Not necessarily, but it does mean that we need to jigger things up in order to maintain a healthier weight or to circumvent that weight gain that often occurs with menopause. Okay. That's so interesting. So, so kind of like the body needs different things at different points, whether it is, you know, related to menopause, whether it's maybe hormonal in terms of pregnancy as well, like that it needs different things. So your body's going to adjust based on that. And it's important for us, like, is that the tool we can use is, you know, if you gain weight all of a sudden when nothing else has changed, maybe is the answer then to figure out what should be changed because maybe some things should change since your body's changing. Absolutely. So next question, um, what are some simple ways to start eating healthier that are not, you know, just going on a diet? What can someone start doing today to have a healthier diet and healthier relationship with food? 
I have so many tips around this. So let me just give you my, let's say top five. Great. That's perfect. Number one, the one thing that I find quite commonly, and this also ties back into the, the menopause question, is inadequate protein. I'm not a fan of keto, intermittent fasting, or any of these dietary interventions. But one thing that we know is true is that macronutrients matter. And the macronutrient that is most important to help suppress those hunger hormones we were talking about is protein. I recommend 20 grams at least of protein per meal. So just to give you a sense for that, what that means, an egg is seven grams. Peanut butter, a tablespoon is only two grams. Chicken or fish is about 25 grams for every three ounces. Garbanzo beans is 20 grams per serving. So take a survey of how much protein you're eating. And I would, I would guess that many people are eating way too little. Number two is I don't restrict how much protein you want to eat. I said three ounces, but no one gained weight from too much chicken. So eat however much you want. But I manage portions by saying however much you eat in protein, I want you to double it in veggies. Remember that veggies are not only low calorie, but more importantly, they're filled with vitamins, minerals, nutrients, antioxidants. And I give the example of arugula. Arugula is only two calories per cup. I love it. I eat it every day. But it has 30 vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. I mean, incredible. Yeah. So increase the amount of or double the amount of green, so to speak, on your plate. Along with that is a mindset tip, which is, again, nothing in what I've said so far is eating in a restrictive fashion. If anything, I said, eat as much protein as you need and double that in in the veggies. And we can extrapolate that to mindset, which is instead of thinking about restriction, think about food in terms of abundance, which means eat so much of what serves you so that you have less room, less desire, less space for that which does not. I love that tip. Gift, right? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. thinking. And then the last one I'm going to say is because you, you said something earlier in the podcast that made me think about it, which is make it matter. And what I mean by that is that food matters in different ways, it matters in terms of of health and nourishment. It matters, like you said, in terms of emotional value, spiritual value. Maybe it's Thanksgiving with our our families, right? That matters. But I think we can all agree that eating that leftover uh, popcorn or that bag of chips while we're watching Bridgerton while we're binging Netflix (laughs) doesn't matter. Right? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, so right. We are so unconscious of that munch that we're not even dialing in. We don't taste it. We don't feel it. We're not even checked into the fact that we're eating. So if we can change our, our thought about food to not like, don't eat this or don't eat that, but like really think before you eat, how does this matter? If it has a physiologic value, great. If it has an emotional value, great. But if it doesn't matter, then we shouldn't be engaging in it. Yes. When it's just mindless, that's when it's just not worth having. Yes. When it's there's no intention with it. I love those tips. Those are so, so, so helpful. Again, I'm literally going to re-listen to this and like take vigorous notes. So thank you for all of your tips. Um, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? Shout out your book, your website, all the amazing things you have going on. Well, I think um, a great place to start is at dradrianudim.com. And if you go there, you can find a lot of freebies, including downloading the first chapter of the book for those who are interested and intrigued. Um, people can find the, the writing journal there, as well as a PDF of a mind-body way to n- nourish yourself from inside out, which is also something you can uh, download free from the website. So I'd love to see people there. You can also message me. I invariably get to all my own messages eventually at dradrianudim.com. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Adrian. It was such a pleasure to have you on and answer all of our burning questions. Um, we loved having you and we so appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.